Once upon a time, there were three pigs, and each decided to build a house. The first pig built a house quickly from straw, and then sat back in leisure while the other pigs labored. The second pig built a house from sticks, and then relaxed with the first pig. The third pig, however, toiled for a year dot to build a house from stone. But once the work was finished, the pig was satisfied. After all three houses were finished, the weather was agreeable for a long time, so the first two pigs ridiculed the third for having expended so much time and energy to build a house that was apparently no sturdier than theirs. But one night, when the pigs were sleeping, a storm blew in, and with it came a ravenous wolf. In the morning, the wolf stood at the first pig's gate, and with lungs like bellows, blew down the house of straw. The first pig, running for dear life, ran to the second pig's house of sticks and begged to be admitted into its safety. Once inside, the two pigs thought themselves safe and said to each other, Surely the wolf cannot topple a house built from sticks. But alas, after only a third huff and puff, the house was shaking, and after the fifth, it crumbled. The first and second pigs, running for dear lives, ran to the third pig's house of stone and begged to be admitted into its safety. Once inside, the three pigs thought themselves safe and said to one another, Surely the wolf cannot topple a house built from stone. And they were correct. The wolf huffed and puffed through the night, and as the sun rose, the wolf fell, exhausted, lifeless. And the house was unmarred. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a podcast and blog dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Learn more about us at storiesofsymmetry.com. We just heard a brief rendition of a classic fable about three little pigs, their three different houses, and the wolf who challenged them. I mention this story because it is remarkably similar to something that Jesus once told the crowds. He said, Everyone who hears my words and actually puts them into practice is like a wise person who digs down to solid rock and then builds his house from that foundation. Rains beat against the house and floods come roaring, but it is not shaken and does not fall, because it is built on a solid rock. But everyone who hears my words and does nothing about them is like a fool who builds his house on sand. Rains fall and floodwaters rise, and the house falls apart. Prodigious is its ruin. Today's episode is about stones. Not, however, in a geological sense, but in a spiritual one. But first, did you know that the Brooklyn Bridge, which spans New York's East River between Manhattan and Brooklyn, has two suspension towers, but that only one of those towers sits on bedrock? The bedrock beneath the Manhattan Tower is so deep, and the sediment just above it nearly as good as bedrock, that the tower's foundation was laid on the subsoil. As the bridge has been standing strong since 1883, I think we can say with confidence that its engineers knew what they were doing. 
Generally speaking, however, firm foundations begin with bedrock, as illustrated by Jesus in the aforementioned parable of two builders. Hearing Jesus' words and doing them is like building on bedrock. The house built thereon will be strong and withstanding. If, however, you hear the words of Jesus but do nothing about it, that's like building on a foundation of sand. The house might look sturdy enough in fair weather, but when storms roll in, the house will crumble. The Hebrew word for the combined actions of hearing and doing is Shema. It is discussed more fully in Season 1, Episode 10. There's action in Shema. But for today, let's talk about cornerstones. In a traditional construction, once the foundation has been established, hopefully on something firm, like bedrock, the cornerstone is laid. That first brick or stone is significant because it becomes the guide for every other brick or stone that will follow, and a poorly placed cornerstone, or a weak one, can result in anything from slightly crooked edges to all-out disaster. Therefore, it is imperative that the cornerstone be chosen and laid correctly. It is the reference, the guide, and the determinant of the quality of the rest of the structure. For these reasons, cornerstones can serve as powerful metaphors. Take, for example, what is said in Isaiah chapter 28. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, saying, Whoever believes will do so thoughtfully, not in haste. I will make justice the measuring line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and water shall overwhelm the shelter. These words, prophesying the Messiah, promise that he will be a sure foundation, someone steadfast and dependable like a cornerstone, someone around whom you can center your life, upon whom you can build your life, in whom you can trust. Cornerstones are unshakable and steady, and God's cornerstone, the Messiah, that is, Jesus, is incomparably immotile and dependable, a reference, a model, a foundation. But when standing in the quarry with, oh, so many stones around, how do we know which one to pick? How can we avoid what happened metaphorically in Psalm 118? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Builders ought to know how to pick the proper materials, but here we are told they looked at a stone, considered it, and then refused it. But when the Holy One surveyed the quarry, God Almighty took that rejected stone and not only incorporated it into the construction, but used it as the very cornerstone itself. This is a parable about Jesus as God's Messiah. The rulers of the land looked at Jesus and brushed him off as inconsequential. God, however, made Jesus the cornerstone. For the builders, there was an additional consequence to their refusal of Jesus. Not only did they set about construction with something inferior, but that rejected stone, Jesus, became an issue in itself. You see, Jesus cannot be tossed away or dismissed with that being the end of it. Having beheld Jesus and then rejected him, 
he becomes a curse. Whereas he is benefit to those who choose him, he is detriment to those who deny. As Isaiah said, God's Messiah will become both a sanctuary and also a rock of offense, a stone on which people will stumble. A stone over which one stumbles, we can appropriately term a stumbling block. And at this point, it is very fair to ask why Jesus would be a stumbling block. After all, being a hazard like that, a sanctuary to some, but a rock of offense to others, seems neither fair, nor loving, nor live and let live. But if we roll with the metaphor, we can ask, whose fault is it that I stumbled? Is the rock there on the ground to blame? Or is it I, the one who is walking along? Imagine hiking through the woods, and you trip over a tree's root. Of course, it's annoying, and possibly dangerous, but is it really fair to be angry at the tree or its roots? You can be upset, but where is your anger more appropriately directed? At the roots, or at yourself, the one who was not looking closely enough at the path? Or, suppose that a physician diagnoses an asymptomatic patient with a fatal illness. Suppose also that that patient refuses treatment and, as a result, dies. Is the physician to blame? No. The burden of responsibility is, was, on the patient, the patient who failed to take action. And yet, it is easy to be angry at the doctor for pointing out the illness to which the patient was blissfully ignorant. It's like Jesus who brought to light his people's problematic habits and then prescribed corrections. Like a physician pointing out what's wrong and how to cure it. Many people listened to Jesus, changed their minds, and followed his teachings, most importantly to love God and love other people. However, many people did not listen, and to them, Jesus became a stumbling block. To the Israelites, Jesus revealed truth, and he tried to disabuse them of their faulty notions. He said things like, Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. Or, Condemn those who break God's law. Do it, it is just. But only let the person who is faultless carry out the sentence. When truth is laid bare, it forces a choice. As each person in ancient Israel had a choice. As each person in our age who hears Jesus' words has a choice. Keep the old ways, or embrace the new. A sick person who does not know that he is ill cannot be faulted for not seeking treatment. But a person who knows his illness and its treatment, and then refuses that treatment, is responsible for his own fate. Just as, before we are told what God expects from us, we are not accountable for whether or not we do it. But once we are told, then the burden is on us. If we refuse, then the words become a stumbling block and condemn us. Whereas if we accept, then we are held to that standard. When confronted with truth, there are two options, accept or reject. Accept is to take that stone of truth and incorporate it into your construction. To refuse is to leave it by the way and potentially, probably, stumble upon it. Weak buildings are built from shoddy bricks, solid buildings from solid ones. If faced with a great pile of mixed quality bricks, I, in my ignorance, Choose some good ones, some crumbly ones. It is what it is. 
But when someone comes along and teaches me to identify the good from the bad, then it's on me. Remember also that despite the vast quantity of bricks that go into a house, there can only be one cornerstone. And remember also that it guides the rest of the building. The question is, what is our cornerstone? One peculiarity of the Christian faith is that if we make God's word, if we make Jesus our cornerstone and let him occupy the most important position in our lives and guide the rest of it, then we ourselves become stones also. Once upon a time, there was a house for the name of God. Being set apart for this purpose, it was called the Holy House, or Beit Hamikdash in Hebrew. The building was in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. We typically refer to it as the Temple of God, or the Jewish Temple. It was built from stone around 950 BC, but it was destroyed fewer than 400 years later. A generation after that, it was rebuilt, again from stone. And still standing 500 years thereafter, it was refurbished and enlarged, more stone still. But in 70 AD, as foretold by Jesus, it was destroyed once again, dismantled brick by brick, stone by stone. The Talmud says that, as a group of faithful Jews approached the site of destruction, they wept and tore their clothes in mourning. But Rabbi Akiva was heard laughing. His companions asked how he could possibly be laughing, given the terrible sight before them. And the rabbi replied that he saw a fox running through the spot where the Holy of Holies had been, and in his opinion, it confirmed a prophecy that the temple would be destroyed and then rebuilt. Since the destruction had happened, he could now look forward to their rebuilding. No physical temple has yet been rebuilt, even in the almost 2,000 years since that second destruction. Indeed, the Muslims who control the Temple Mount in Jerusalem refuse to let Jews even stand upon it, let alone contemplate replacing the Islamic constructions that are situated with the Jewish temple. As far as Christianity is concerned, although some Christians throughout history have preoccupied themselves with Jewish holy sites, in this case Beit HaMikdash, the movement that Jesus initiated does not, in its purest form, have holy sites. From an ethical perspective, Christians have their opinions about Jerusalem's Temple Mount, but from a religious standpoint, it's just another heap of dirt. This is because Christians believe that the third temple is already being built. The construction has been underway for quite some time, as a temple built to withstand eternity is sure to take a while. But the third temple is not being built from stone, at least not the dead stones found in the ground. Rather, it is being built from people, as living stones. Each follower of Jesus is a living stone in God's new house quickened and made alive to God by spiritual life derived from him, to quote the Benson commentary. We, as living stones in God's living temple, are added to the cornerstone that made it possible, Jesus. He is the cornerstone that the builders rejected but that God chose. 
we, likewise as followers of Christ, are often rejected by the world, at odds with it, like Moses, a stranger in a strange land. And though we might feel out of place for a little while, we eventually find our place, snugly set as living stones in the house that is built upon Jesus. These thoughts are best summarized by the Apostle Peter, whose words have been preserved for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to the Lord, as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a part of God's living temple. The blueprints were drafted long ago, and Jesus is the cornerstone. We, if we choose it, are living stones built upon him. As such, we are joined into something greater than ourselves as individuals, greater than even Jesus alone, because together, as a unified spiritual house, with a whole greater than the sum of its components, we are God's people who have received mercy and joined a royal priesthood as a people for God's own possession. Now, if you consider yourself a living stone in God's house, then necessarily you are not alone, but part of a community. One consequence of this fact is that your choices and your decisions affect the greater whole, the body of Christ and all who are in it. It is important then that we comport ourselves accordingly, Remember that we represent something more than ourselves. But at the same time, inclusion in the body of Christ means, also, that we have the support of the group. We are not in isolation, neither are our missions. The Church of Jesus supports its members. We are one great network whose nexus is Jesus himself, whose aid is God himself, as the Holy Spirit. Be of good cheer, then, for when you are weak, there are others who can strengthen you. And when you need solace, there are friends who can comfort you. Suppose, however, that you are not yet a living stone, but you want to become one. The process is quite simple. Think about what it means to become a living stone, a member of Christ's congregation, the good and the bad, the family of believers and their rampant persecution, the abundant freedom and the great expectations. Think also about Jesus, who he is, what he's done. 
Think about if you believe that Jesus died so that you can approach the Holy One without fear. Think about whether or not you can accept it as a gift that you neither deserve nor can repay. Think about all these things. And if you choose Jesus, then, just like that, welcome to the family. The body of Christ exists throughout the world. Not every building claiming to be a church hosts a part of that body, just as not every part of the body has even the infrastructure of a building. Different parts of the body speak every language imaginable, are shaded every skin color imaginable. But as we discussed two weeks ago, they all bear the sign of stigmata, the unmistakable air of Christ. The body of Christ is its people. The body of Christ is living stones. My name is Ben Laboot, and thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today. If you want to reflect more on the body of Christ, then check out the blog series Corpus, which will begin next Thursday on storiesofsymmetry.com. Thank you to everyone who supports this podcast and helps it grow. If you enjoy Stories of Symmetry, then please share it with the people you know, and even those you don't know, by liking and sharing us on Facebook and Instagram, at Stories of Symmetry, or through whatever channels you use. Don't miss the season 3 finale, one fortnight from today, titled, As For Me And Mine. Until then, go with God, go in peace.